Authorization required. Captain's log. The impossible has happened. Somewhere along this journey, we'll find a way back. Enter authorization code. We might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. Our mission is to go forward. But it's just begun. There's still much to do. Still so much to learn. Security authorization accepted. Command codes verified. Transfer complete. You're listening to An Hour with the Continuing Committee with your host, Charlie Plain. So, my name's Alan Gould. I'm from Edmonton, Alberta. I've been playing Star Trek since 1995. And in that time, I've been the main tournament director in Edmonton, uh, the Fringenar ambassador. Uh, do, 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 do. I'm trying to think, put this in some sort of order. Uh, rules articles for Decipher, uh, card of the days for Wesley, and just generally been that guy that everybody asks if their weird trick works. So, Well, now you are officially the guy that everybody asks. If their weird trick works. <laughs> yeah, it's you, you a little odd, to be honest. Yeah. So. so, for those of you that don't know, Alan was recently appointed as the new first edition rules master after Nick stepped down earlier in the year. So, congratulations, Alan. Oh, thank you very much. Tell everybody, I mean, obviously you've done a lot of stuff, but what? why do you think you ended up being the rules master? What in your history led you to this point and you know what's your experience with money ben and what are you you know just tell us a little bit about what's going on in your head your headspace right now so uh well in edmonton uh we've had we've always had some really good players we've got uh olaf rockney we've got uh tom solway some other folks who aren't around so much anymore and i was always the guy running the tournaments um so a lot of the rules knowledge comes from having people who are always pushing the boundary on what you could get away with. So I had to keep up and make sure I knew what they could do and what they couldn't. Uh, my, I'm one of those rulesy sorts of folks. So like I do uh, some role playing. So I've done Living Greyhawk, Living Realms, and I always gravitated more to the to the GM side of life. Uh, so a lot of it's just internal wiring. I'm just interested in how all the pieces connect and whatnot, and I'm just playing better at judging than playing. So I understand. Um, have you done any playing recently, or are you, are you going to do any playing recently, or is this something you're doing? You know, sort of more from a more theoretical point. Uh, actually, I the Canadian Nationals are in town this year. Uh, that's the week after next, uh, like second week of January. So I'll be playing slash rulesing in there. Um, uh, Bear Nor- Morath's the official TD, so I'll let him do all the paperwork, but it sounds like I'll be getting the... I, I think it's just a job hazard, right? It's like, are you going to ask the TD, or are you going to ask the guy who's listed as the TD's boss? So, I'll be getting my share of rules questions there. Well, right, but you know, we always want to make sure that the TDs are the authority at the local events, so even if even if you're playing the rules master, if the tournament director says it's one thing, that's the way it is. We'll just have to... Oh, yeah educate that player later to, to avoid the yeah. mistake in the future. So, uh, I've always 
been a fan of the uh, the 3TD plan anyway. Like, okay, if I'm playing, it doesn't matter how good I am at the rules. You shouldn't trust me because you're logically, I want my trick to work, right? I mean, go ask somebody else. Make yeah. sure everybody else thinks it's right, too. So. Absolutely. So, one uh has been, I'm, I'm very happy with the growth and uh, support that one has been given over the last two years. How much how much involvement have you had in the continuing committee's support for 1E from day one up to the point where you became the rules master? Uh, well, I found out about the rules committee oh, probably a couple of years ago. Um, or sorry, the continuing committee. Um, and I honestly don't remember when I ended up as one of the shadowy rules committee folks. Um, and it that, did that for a spell and then... I was asked to do more of the errata side of things. Um, so I've been doing that for the last, oh, probably close to a year. And and then when Nick left, the big rules job opened up and I put my name in. So yeah, so most of it has been on the behind-the-scenes uh, paperwork side of life. So. so you did you work under Jeremy and Nick yeah. as well? Yeah I, yeah, I started, I think Jeremy wrote me in first, and then yeah, Nick inherited it from Jeremy, and I inherited it from Nick, so. Absolutely. So, why did you want the job? Because, let's be honest, it's not an easy job, and many times the rules master has to say and do things that make him not a very popular person. Why would you oh. seek this job out? Uh, well, I, I mean, it's... The rules job is, it's, it's the bad cop and the good cop, bad cop scenario. You know, design gets to be the good cop. They get, they're the ones that get to bring out, here's the flashy new cards, here's all the new toys, you know. Rules is the guy saying, okay, well, no, this doesn't quite work, or here's this awesome thing that you figured out and we're not going to let you do it anymore. Uh, my interest in it is, uh, like, my day job, I'm a business analyst. So my working career has largely been around, here is a whole bunch of stuff. How do you make it simple? How do you make it clear? How... What is the cleanest way to accomplish something? And what interests me on the rule side is we have, you know, I mean, we have an 80-page glossary. We have all of these things, and it's that how do we make it simple for players to deal with? Because realistically, uh, somebody was just telling me yesterday, you know, nobody wants to know about the rules guy. You know, this stuff should just work, and if you notice that the rules people are doing things, it probably means something's wrong. Um, so from my end... Uh, I mean, even going back before Trek, I've always been the guy, the behind the scenes, getting stuff organized, you know, uh, the fellow who's running the till at the school dance, that sort of thing. So I'm just kind of wired that way on the, let's get things to work so that everybody else gets to have more fun. So. Well, that's a good strategy. And, and, and I, I mean, ideally, in a game like this, the rules committee and the people on it should do nothing. I mean, if, if everything was functioning properly and, and well-supported, the Rules Committee would do nothing because there would be no problems with the rules. There would be no cards that needed to be rotted. And a lot of times, the 2E Rules Committee does do nothing, but, but 1E, being out of being supported for so long and being born in an era when nobody had an idea of what to do, it has some more troubles. So what are some of the things you're going to want to look at in, say, the first six months of 2011? Uh, the three things I'm looking to get is I want to get us done 
I think probably the cleanest way to say this is One E has been spending a lot of time, I mean, pretty much since even before Decipher officially pulled the plug on it, is we've been looking backwards on here's old stuff that isn't working right, so we're going to change the old stuff, we're going to bullet old stuff, we're basically playing catch-up. And this year I'd like to get the cleanup done to a point that we're comfortable going to where 2E is, where it's the we're looking forward. You know, we're happy with where the past is, and we're going to change things going forward. And if you hear singing, that is my cute little daughter sitting on my lap here. Uh, no worries. Yeah. Uh, so, and part of that is getting the errata, like, what are we going to errata, and just kind of being done with it. Because that's an area where it's really easy to reinvent the book. Like, it's tempting to go back to those old premiere cards from the late 90s and such and say, well, you know, we could do it so much better, we just have to do this. And it's, we need to resist that urge and say, you know what, we can always make new cards. We can, you know, the cool stuff doesn't need to be on stuff printed in 96. It can be stuff printed in 2011. Um, the moving beyond that, I think we need an actual rule book. I mean, right now we have a rule book that nobody looks at because everything in the rule book's in the glossary. So really the glossary is our rule book and it doesn't do that job well. Uh, we need something that's short that you can hand to a new player. Um, and it's the, you know, the five pages up. Here is the 20% of the rules you need to sit down and play. Everything else you'll pick up as you go along. Uh, one that I've always been terribly jealous of is uh, Magic went from like a three or four page thing. Now you buy a starter deck and you get like a poster page. And half of it is advertising. And then the rest of it is here is the game in six paragraphs and a few pretty pictures. And we'll never get to that point because we're a more complex game and we like it that way but i think we can get it to something that you know you can teach a game without it having to become here's 80 pages of glossary and 20 pages of dilemma resolution guide and you know another nine pages of current rulings and i mean by the time you read all of that it's i mean who wants to read a novel before you play a game um, the third thing i want to get done is i think we need a shorter glossary there's a lot of stuff in there that is um we went through a, we've gone through the phase where we were willing to bend the rules to make it fit the episode. Um, or to, like, there was a problem. Like, cumulative ruling is the most horrible thing in my mind. It just hurts me to read it. Uh, and it's one where that ruling has shifted over time to meet whatever, uh, the metagame needed to be. So you had a deck. I mean, and the, and the joke goes, right? You know, is this a cool idea? Well, you're not allowed to do it because of the cumulative rule. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you have those. Uh, you know, the other one that's come to mind is cloaking, where whether a card works or doesn't work on a cloaked ship pretty much requires you to know the episode the card came from, not the text on the card. And, and that can be daunting for players who haven't seen the episodes in question. So. Well, and I mean, especially at this point now that you're talking about, you would need to see every episode of you know, five different series at this point. I mean, heck, six now that we got animated series dribbles. So, well, let me ask you a question on that. And then let's say that your team takes the time to look at all the cards that have to do with cloaking and phasing and look at the rules and generate a, a new rule that, uh, captures the spirit of what's trying to do and makes it nice and simple. But there are, say, 
three or four cards that don't fit in nicely to that rule. Is that something you, you go back and try to rewrite the rule to make them fit? Do you put exceptions in the rule, or do you go and errata those cards? The thought I have in my mind uh, is, I mean, you want the rule to be simple. Like, at the absolute simplest thing you can say, you know, it's when you are, you know, uh, like, I mean, try and cumulative just other than, or no, we'll, we'll stick with cloaking. So, I mean, basically, cloaking is the I turn invisible, you can't see. So, you want it to be in that simple, okay, I'm cloaked, so you can't shoot at me, you, maybe you can't play cards on me, or whatever the deal is. Um, then, if there's cards that you want to work on a cloaked ship, and right now they work because we've put it in the rules... I think that's something that needs to be on the card. So that's it. I mean, we already have a few of those. You have like your LaForge maneuvers and your uh, Tachyon detection grids, and it says you know, you can play this, and it this plays on a cloaked ship, and it does something. Um, and I think that's where those sorts of exceptions need to be, is the card needs to say, yes, I work on a cloaked ship, rather than the glossary saying, oh yeah, by the way, this works. Because in practical terms, the only people who know that are people like me who just read the rule book for fun, or people who have dug through it looking for those little exceptions and kind of corner cases so that they can exploit it. And your average player who's just, you know, they want to play the game, they pull the cards, they treat everything as written, they only find out about it when they just got hit by it and are having that moment of, well, wait a minute, that wasn't supposed to work. And that doesn't strike me as fun. Okay, so let's talk about errata then, in in general. Um, you were, and prior to becoming the rules master, you were in charge of the uh, OTF ban list errata project, meaning you yep. were trying to your your job was to take all of the cards that are on the OTF ban list and unban them by fixing them. Yes. Obviously, as the rules master, you've We'll continue in that responsibility. What what's yeah. your what's the philosophy behind that? You know, we haven't seen too many cards come off the list since we put. I mean, we've put some on. We've taken a couple off. We've taken a couple off from design. The uh, the two e backwards compatible cards. Some of them have come off. What's your philosophy and approach to the OTF era? Well, the first thing is we need the card to not be broken anymore. A lot of, actually, we probably should take a step back. Is One of the reasons why we're slow on this, we've got the one page of nine cards out so far, and we're pretty close to a second one, is all the changes we're making are going through the playtesting group just as if it was a new set. Um, so it's not a matter of the rules committee or me sitting here saying, okay, well, that sounds cool. I'm kicking it out the door. We'd be done a lot faster. Um, we're actually putting them through, making sure that these cards will work in the current environment and we're not missing any details because the worst possible thing we could do is to errata say Q which has been broken since well the entire history of the game and the worst thing we could do is errata that put it out and say yay we fixed it and two weeks later somebody's got their deck up showing how you continue to break it uh, so the first golden rule is the errata card has to be at a power level that we're comfortable with. It can't be too good. Um, it has to be flips, fixed. It has to be fixed. The flip side is that that doesn't mean it has to be good enough. So like, if the choice is to make it too good or really horrible, we're going to make it really horrible. Um, 
that goes into the second goal we're going for is, is that we want the errated card to be as close to the original as we can get away with. Um, preferably both on text and in spirit, or as close on either of them as we can manage. Uh, the logic for that is, especially for, there's printed cards, these things are everywhere. And there's a lot of people who don't know about the Continuing Committee, you know, we want to get these people in, and I have played uh, CCGs where you show up and you find out when you sit down that the card in your hand says something completely different. I mean, not even, I mean, I'm talking beyond things like where, you know, you play a Delta Quadrant Spatial Schism and you find out, okay, you only get one card instead of two cards. I mean, if that's one of those, okay, it doesn't work right, but it still does what I think it does. It just doesn't do it as well. Um, I played games that had the equivalent of something that said, you know, give a personnel cunning plus two, and the errated said, give a ship shields plus three. And that's a really big speed bump for players that we're trying to bring in. And a lot of players don't, especially the more casual ones, don't understand why we were fixing in the first place. So the smaller the change we can make, the happier everybody will be. The card gets fixed, you're looking at your printed card, and it still does close enough to that that you're, you know, if you put it in your deck by accident, you're not going to be too far off the mark. Um, ideally, the only people I'd like to even care about the errata are the folks who were trying to break the card in the first place. Like, if you're using it for a, you know, a quote-unquote good use, you know, the one that nobody complains about, ideally, the errata version should function essentially the same way as the old ones. Um, a good example is the new Kevins and the new Amandas. They're really the only hit is if you were planning on trying to cycle those cards around and around again. Now you can't, they go to the point area. But if you were just throwing a couple in your deck and you didn't know about the errata, they still do everything they ever did. And if you put them in your discard pile by accident and just never pulled them out, you're still 99% right. So then there's really a no harm, no foul on that. So, so the, the goal of this project then is to keep them as close to what they should be as possible, but close the loopholes that were putting them on the ban list in the first place. Yeah, because a lot of the cards, it's, I mean, especially when you go to the early ones, like, you know, in 95, I think was a Trek was one of the first four CCGs to ever come down the pipe. I, you look at any of the cards from that era, and nobody really knew what was supposed to happen in a collectible card game, you know what was good, what wasn't, what was horrible. Um, so you go through, I mean, things like, say, Red Alert. It's, you know, in 94, nobody really knew whether that was a good ability or not until you get it out into the wild and people figure it out. So a lot of them is just making those tweaks on, okay, you know, this was too good because you can do it too much, you can do it too often, it's too, you know, it's too cheap for what you get. Um, so a lot of our... There's a good chunk of the OTF list that can be fixed just by minor, just making it a little more restrictive, or it just doesn't trigger as often, or, um, like, it's a lot of, I mean, a lot of those erratas you go through, and it's, you have to actually see both cards to even see the difference. You're only talking a couple words. Yeah. Because a lot of things, something that goes every turn and now only goes each turn is actually a pretty major drop in power level, and sometimes that's all you need. Cool. So, but even the cards that are getting minor changes are still going through a full cycle of testing and evaluation, correct? Yep. 
all of them, you know, uh, which is one of the delays because we're, I mean, the playtesters are great folks. They're working their butts off, but we're basically shoehorning the erratas in between new sets because you don't want to stop doing one at the expense of the other. Um, so we're kind of, right now they're trying to do both at the same time. They're doing a, I mean, they're doing a great job of it, but it is, we are competing for time. So if people like to get their cards done faster, they should get a group and sign up to playtest. Um. <laughs> Absolutely. So can you give us maybe a little hint or spoiler of, of something that you're working on right now that's close to done so that people can get a feel for what kind of changes you're making? Uh, let's see, what would be a good one? I I personally am fond of the new uh, Rogue Borg Mercenaries, because um, I think that's a good example of where the there was a, an obvious good use and a bad use. And the good use is when you printed it, the idea was it's uh, it's poor man's personnel battle, as if you can't or don't want to actually play Klingons or Dominion or the Phaser Rifles, or to have that, my personnel go and beat you up, you can get a bunch of Rogue Borg mercenaries, drop them on a ship, and you get to pick a fight more inefficiently, but you can do it. Um, so, I mean, that's the good use. You go, you drop a bunch of guys on there, you have a nice rousing battle for a couple of turns. Usually you get either your opponent kills them off, or they just bail the ship, jump on the next guy, however that works out. Uh, the bad use that people figured out was, I can play one, pick the fight, I lost, but you're stopped. And, I mean, the battle was almost incidental to what the, the effective text was, was play on ship, they're all stopped, which was just, I mean, astoundingly good. You know, cheaper than dilemmas. Uh, so the change that is currently being made is it changes the fight from now and every turn to each of your turns. So the Borg only battle on the owner of the Rogue Borg Mercenaries' turns. Uh, the big effect that has is that if you play one, they fight, since they're not fighting on the, the owner of the ship's turns, your their guys are never stopped. So one is pretty much useless unless you need something to trigger on a, just having a battle. Uh, if you play the big pile of them, they fight half as often, but they work as usual. So you can so you can still drop a pile of them, kill a bunch of guys, and it it takes a bit of a hit, but it's not terribly bad. Generally, because as soon as you fought, either you know you're going to win, so you go pick the fight and finish them off, or you know you're going to lose and you bail the ship. Uh, so that one I'm kind of fond of, just in the... It kills the use that we don't like, but it doesn't really touch the use that we'd like. And a neat side effect of that is that card now, but when once it's eroded, becomes a printable card. So if you need forty of them, you can just print them. So, yeah. But it doesn't take away anything from the guys who have a stack of forty rogue boards sitting at home. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And if you're and to go back to what I was saying earlier is if you're looking at the rogue board, it works. 90% the way the card says. The strengths didn't change. They still play on a ship. They The remaining Borg remain. The only change is just the timing. And the only, and the really only big effect is now they just don't stop you, which is the part... I mean, the stop was the bad. The battle was the is the good part. So. so, one of the things that put a lot of these cards on the ban list is that they were broken or abusive and 
Decipher had a strategy for dealing with broken or abusive cards, which became the referee mechanic. So if you, for example, um, we have Kevin and Amanda and Quinn, or Kevin, Amanda, and QQ, I guess, were eroded. But OOF, which is a ref card that was meant to deal with these things, was also eroded. So what's the end game? And maybe there's no answer right now, but what are your thoughts and what would you do if it were entirely up to you for the end game of referee cards? Well, Oof was a bit of an odd duck, because Oof's errata is solely so that it still works on the original three. And that was just a matter of, instead of going, uh, the old Oof grabbed those cards out of the discard pile, now that they go to the point area, Oof's changed to say, okay, we'll go look at the point area instead. Um, so it's almost more a functional errata, more than a power level. It's okay, just saying, yeah, the I'm... world has changed, this is... Go look here instead, because that's where they're going to land. Let me give you another example. We have scan and full planet scan on the errata list, on the band yep. list. There are four or five cards in the game meant to deal with those two cards. What is the end game for getting scan full planet scan back in the game? What do you do with those ref cards? How, how do you address the fact that the power level needs to be balanced, but if you make them balanced and have all those referee cards in the game, now they're just awful. The problem with the ref cards isn't so much that they're a counter, because games need counters. You need, you know, magic has counter spells, uh, Lord of the Rings had ways to just kill minions or, you know, direct damage, call it whatever you want. Every game, you need to have some form of interaction. And sometimes you just need something that says, hey, you're trying this, no, I planned for that and you're having trouble. Uh, the problem we had is that that works well for stuff that's strong, but not broken. Once it's broken, then all of the bullet does is put the onus on everybody else to protect against you. Uh, which, so you have a couple of ref cards, and you know, people uh, stock them or didn't as time went on. Uh, and then you get to the point where there's so many different things that you're supposed to protect against that you just can't do it, so now you're playing Name That Cheats. So then you got Q the ref that says, okay, I can grab whichever one I happen to need at this moment without having to spend 20 seed slots on it. Uh, thing is, that still leaves the onus on the defender. And then as things piled up, we had to do tribunal to let you get at them more and more. And basically, we're just arms racing, but it's still easier to be the guy on the offensive than the guy on the defensive. So we're doing the errata now to just cut the power level to the point that we don't mind these cards existing. Um, the counters, for the most part, still do their jobs. You're playing, you can play Intruder Alert and say, no, you know what, you're going to play some Rogue Borg. No, I've got a defense for Rogue Borg. Um, or, you know, I or your defense against other things or whatever. You know, For each of those bullets, you're making the choice based on, am I weak against this strategy? Do I care about it? You know, I'm playing Klingons who are carrying uh, Batleths, and you can play as many Rogue Borgs, I'm just going to cut them down, so I don't need to pack the bullet for that anymore. The, so the problem becomes that all of those bullets are so cheap and easy to get that we're nerfing the original cards. Um, so my sense at the moment is I think we need to do something about the engine half of it. Uh, Q the ref, Tribunal of Q. They don't do anything in the game other than just that meta cycling. So, I mean, it could be a matter of doing an errata on them. Um, 
I'm personally inclined to just make to just put them on the ban list, either OTF or completely. Uh, it gives us a bit of options. It, it gives people who want to play with the older versions or don't mind it, they can still do their thing. Um, but I think if we take the engine out, that brings the game back down to the what am I playing, what do I think you're playing, and what things could you do that could hurt me and that I want to protect against. So, in a perfect world, were the decision up to you entirely, we would errata all the cards that are currently on the ban list, and then another phase of changes to the referee cards to make it so they're not as powerful as they are, perhaps, or bring them more in line with the eroded cards, and then remove the referee engine so they would essentially become an unloaded icon? Pretty much. Um, I think removing the engine piece goes most of the way. There's a few ref cards that are really almost broken in their own right. Like, uh, Stratagema is just a terrible card in my mind, because it's it's a ban that Decipher didn't feel comfortable enough just pulling the trigger on and saying they're banned. Because the card literally just says, no, you can't play this, you can't play that, you can't play that, you can't play that. So if we're if we've made the card safe, there's some of those ref cards are gonna need a rework to say, uh, you know, okay, this is what we're going to do with them now. Uh, I mean another one that goes too far is uh, Shapeshift Inhibitor is a ref card that's on the ban list because it's too good as a referee card. Gotcha. So what's the timeline for this? I mean, assuming that's the way things are going to go, and I know that we're going to be involving the community in, in this process too, but let's just, let's just start with what we know. What's the timeline, best case scenario, for clearing the OTF bandwidth? Best case would probably be a few months. But, um, how we've been doing them is... We have about anywhere between 15 and 18 cards in the hopper. Um, so that's what the the playtesters are getting. Is they're getting about two pages of cards, and they're going through and saying, okay, well, can and a lot of the question is, can you still break this? Um, as we get comfortable with them, we lock them, we pull them out, put them in the ready-to-print file, put a new card in. Uh, last I checked, there's about 20-some cards on the... No, there's more than that. Um, so if we're doing them, they'll get released nine at a time, and it's literally a matter of how fast can we find safe versions of these. And again, we're trying to keep them close. We're trying to, you know, as much as possible, still let them be useful. Um, some cards just sadly aren't going to be at the end, just because, uh, I mean, a good one would be Q. If there's not a lot on that card that isn't broken. It's... You know, being able to reshuffle the space line is horrible. Being able to skip dilemmas is horrible. And the only thing left on the card is really the unless. Uh, so some of those are going to take time because you're trying to find something that works with them. Um, another one that I think will probably be one of the last to come off the list would be Davidian Door. Uh, ideally, I'd like to be done by summer. Um, realistically, it's definitely a, it'll be done when it's done. Because we'd rather do it right than soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I should probably mention before everybody gets panicked that, you know, the new guy in charge of rules is having these uh, massive delusions of grandeur is there's, I mean, on top of myself as the front man, we also have our rules liaison, 
and there's also a very strong group of people on the committee who really deserve a lot more credit than they get. So we'll just refer to them as, you know, our shadowy cabal and say thank you. Uh, so we, and we've got a lot of people with a lot of different perspectives, and we definitely don't all agree on things, which is good because when we reach a consensus, we're in a place that everybody's happy with where it's going. Um, so yeah. don't panic. There's there's people to make sure I don't get too crazy about this. So the other thing you mentioned earlier was updating the documentation. And there's a lot of it for one. We had, you know, we need a rule book. We need an updated glossary. We need uh, the dilemma resolution guide to be updated. All the while, you're having to work on the ban list and scout the new expansions and all this other stuff. What is it? Is that something that the documentation, something that's going to be a priority for us in 2011? Priority for you and your team? Uh, I definitely want to get the new rulebook done, just because the glossary is our rulebook and it doesn't do that job terribly well. I want something that is the straight up, you know, welcome to the game, here are your card types, this is how the game works, without getting too mired in the details of... If, you, if it's your first game, do you need to know the details of dual personnel or cloaking devices or phasing or a multitude of things? You know, you're probably not going to run into triples your first game. Do you need to know about that in the rulebook proper? Um, I'm just kind of naming random things, but it's kind of the classic rule. There's probably only about 20% of the rules you need to cover 80% of the game. Uh, so that's the rulebook side. The glossary side is what I'd really like to do is just go through it. And um, the the way it's it's a justify your existence thing is to go through the rules and say you know what we have this ruling it's here doing this weird specific exception do we need it to do that you know do we do we need to spend that space saying well this particular card interacts with this particular mechanic in this particular way that probably doesn't come up enough. Do we need that, or do we just rephrase the rule, make it simple, make it generic, make it cover everybody, and clean out a whole mess of space? Um, going back to cloaking devices, there are about a dozen entries in the glossary that are saying it's under this card, and it says this card affects cloaked ships or doesn't affect cloaked ships, or um, things like a, a good one that gets me as established tractor lock has an entry saying, you, a cloak ship can't tractor can't use this card, but once you've got it, you can cloak. Right. And it's okay. Well, a how often has this actually ever happened? And b do you need that specific exception for this particular combination, or is it something that should just be rolled into the cloaking rules generally, in whatever whichever way that goes? So are, are we really talking about? two levels of documentation then where we have like a, a beginner's rule book and then we have a the glossary becomes more of a advanced rule book or even a comprehensive rule book I'd say more of the comprehensive one is because the glossary is chock full of weird corner cases and you need some of those uh, I mean you get into the particulars of uh, you know what exactly happens when you're phasing what are you know there's mission attempting which Really, most people just know it as the, okay, I attempt the mission, you get the first dilemma, you keep going until you're stopped or until you run out of dilemmas. If you hit the bottom, you try to solve the mission. I mean, there's mission attempts in a nutshell. 
you still need all the nuts and bolts of exactly how all these pieces work together, but you don't need to inflict that on a new player. And until you reach a certain level of the game, just in terms of like, okay, how seriously am I taking this? You probably don't care about the minute interactions of, can you interrupt here? You know, what's this and that and the other thing. So you need that comprehensive, here's the nuts and bolts for the rules lawyers and the power gamers of the world. But you need to have that basic one that just says, okay, you know, I'm, you know, I'm starting my daughter on the game. Here's what a mission is. Here's the pretty pictures. This is, you know, this is enough to get you playing and we'll teach you the fine details once you're well and truly hooked. Makes sense. And as long as you have that information available, you know, on the website or at, at the back of the, the basic rule book, it says, you know, for more information, go here. You know, players can can discover that on their own too. But the goal, one of the things we didn't have at Gen Con last year was, here's a you know short piece of paper we can hand you that tells you how to play the game. Here's a deck. Walk you through. I mean, we had to do everything by hand last year, where we had to have volunteers explain everything, which is good, and you want to do that. But then there wasn't anything that they could take home that was simple and would explain to them how to play at home, so they could they and their buddies could play, which would which would grow the community. You know, we've got people who only play at Gen Con because there's somebody there to teach them. So, I I think that a basic rulebook is something we would definitely want to put out before Gen Con if we can. Yeah, and and the basic one is definitely the easier of the two to do because the basic one is just rewriting in the, I mean, another way to put it is it's it's the Cole's notes or I think or Cliff's notes. It's the here's the short version. This is what you need to get started. Um, the glossary rework is a lot more going through and saying, okay, you know, pulling on these little rulings and saying, well, what would happen if this wasn't here anymore? You know, does it even matter anymore? Does anybody even, does anybody even remember it's here? Um, the other thing that the glossary, I think, could use is right now we've got it just, I mean, it's a glossary in the honest sense of it's an alphabetical list of terms. And that leads to almost a little mini game of, well, here's the question I have what word do I need to look up to find the ruling on it? Yeah. And if I don't pick the right word, I might get something that's close, but not the specific one I'm looking for. And I think there, to change it, you want to go more to a, like, okay, you know, here's the mechanics. Here is the something that walks you through it in a little bit more um, by topic, like in the, okay, here is all the special equipment and all the things you need to know about special equipment, dot, 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 dot. Here's the skills, you know, I mean, back in the day when you had special skills and whatnot, you know, here's all of your icons and all the rules for icons. And just kind of have it so it's a little bit simpler on everything you need to know about something should be in roughly the same place in the book. Yeah. Um, the other side of that would be things like, you know, the Dilemma Rule Resolution Guide is a good example of the Okay, I need to know how a dilemma works. Here is the little subsection that is all the dilemmas that you need to worry about. You know, the board rules are something that's nice and easy to pull out into its own section because either one of you is playing Borg and you need to know about it, or neither of you are playing Borg and you don't need to look at those pages for the entire game. Like right. it's it's they're nice standalone topics of either I need to know this stuff or I don't need to know it at all, and we don't need to clutter up everything else while you're trying to find something with things that we you either know it's here or you know it's not. 
Okay, one thing I want to ask you then. Um, obviously, the continuing committee has been producing virtual expansions for Winnie. We've got two actual expansions of new cards and one reprint, and a third is on the way for early 2011. What's your involvement in that process? When do you come in? What kind of things do you look for that's different than what our designers look for? How do you interact with these new expansions coming out? Uh, right now, we see them, I think, roughly halfway through the process. So after designs kind of got their head wrapped around, this is what we want to be doing. Um, where I see rules coming in is, what do we need to do to make these new cards fit in with the existing rules? And sometimes that's a matter of, well, okay, the card is written, doesn't quite work, So, but if we tweak the card, we can make the card do what you want it to do without having to add any rules overhead. Or, what do we have to do to the rules to, uh, to make them work with these new, you know, if we're setting up a new mechanic, okay, well, how are we going to define this? This is, you know, how do we make the rules play nice in the simplest sort of way? Um, so, for instance, the new set, uh, just throw a little spoiler, is there's a, a card that cloaks, and it's a card type that's never cloaked before. So one of the things we're doing is going through the cloaking rules and saying, okay, what needs to change to make this work? And sometimes it's just as simple as saying, okay, well, you know, if you look through the cloaking entry right now, all it talks about is ships. Just ships cloak, uh, ships phase. And then what's come out of that is, well, you have a cloaking mission. You have Investigate Legends from way back when. But all the rules for that are just tucked under Investigate Legend. Um, you can have personnel that can phase, um, the phase matter dilemma. And all the rules for that are tucked over there. So we're taking the opportunity to go and say, okay, well, here's cloaking, here's phasing, this is how it works, and we can have one entry that will cover all the different cards that can cloak or phase or and whatnot. And you guys are also looking for consistency and, you know, this doesn't mean what you think it means type of, of situations when you look at these cards too, right? Yeah, the, you, know, you say, well, and, and you run into weird things, especially for the folks who play 1E and 2E, where this word doesn't, you know, if you say something moves in second edition and it moves in first edition, that actually has a slightly different meaning, um, mainly in the, the details of, like, are you using your range and and just some of the mechanical differences between the games that they don't necessarily translate. So it's a question of, do we want to keep the same wording, accepting the change in mechanics, or do we want to change the wording to preserve how the mechanics work? And that's a case-by-case -case thing, because sometimes something that is fine in second edition is crazy in first, or vice versa. Well, one of the things that I like to do when I have guests on is a random card review. And given that you're the first edition rules master, we're going to do a first edition random card review. And I have randomly selected a card that I got out of my boxes for Christmas. Uh, ah. And we're going to talk about... 45 Dom Perignon. So, what okay. are your thoughts on this card? Uh, the one thing that, as with my rules hat on, the one thing that always struck me as weird on this is uh, that they put a ruling saying that unknown classes aren't the same as other unknown classes. Um, which, that's the thing of, 
in the Trek sense, that makes sense, right? Uh, you know, a mercenary ship isn't the same as, I'm trying to remember what the other unknown class out there is. Uh, from a rules perspective, I suspect that we probably wouldn't break anything if you allowed that trick. Um, I know a lot of folks who are fond of the uh, grab your universal ship and go grab a unique one. Uh, I can't say I've ever personally used that one. Uh, I have friends that do more of the holographic stuff than I haven't done that since you were allowed to beam fecklers onto opponents' ships. <laughs> well, I think the the idea behind this is that you see the space door, you flip your space door to get a unique ship, and then you, assuming that you have a holodeck door, you uh, flip this to get the unique version that probably gives you some other special download. I, I put this in a... a uh, a TOS deck I had built, and I, I flipped the space door for the generic Constitution class, and then downloaded the guy that it gives you, and then went and grabbed the Enterprise to grab the guy that it gives you without having the time travel. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> and we probably shouldn't forget the the actual battle ability on that isn't bad. I mean, it's holographic equipment, which means you got a little bit. It's a little bit trickier to deal with, but. That is a straight, your weakest guy automatically beats whoever they run into during a battle. Yeah, a lot of Decipher cards are like that, where they have two really different abilities on there. A good example would be Defend Homeworld. You know, it's 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 there for one purpose. You know, it was, it was written to, you know, somebody comes and attacks your homeworld, you can respond. But for whatever reason, they added the download a security guy on there, and that's what everybody uses it for. I mean, I can't remember the last time somebody used the Defend Homeworld to defend their homeworld. They they go get it to get a free security guy. Yeah, and Defend Homeworld, that's uh, that's actually one of the sets that I playtested during. So I actually remember seeing the Defend Homeworld that didn't download a security and It was literally a last-minute we have a spare line of text, and, well, gee, what happens if there isn't a battle deck? We should give you an ability that you can burn this off later once you know you're, you don't need it for the battle. And the part that was kind of missed in the shuffle was, oh, well, this free security is way better than the Armada defense. Right, so it seems like, you know, the image that they went with for the 45 Dom supports the battle mechanic. But then they went and said, well, you all, you also have the scene at the beginning of Generations where the champagne christens the ship. And that's where the other part came from. So it seems like one of the things I like about Tui is they have the, the persona concept where, you know, it's okay if we have 15 different Kieran Reese's as long as each one comes from a slightly different point in that character's history. Whereas in first edition, you need to get the phone. <laughs> uh, no, I think my wife is grabbing it, and it's it says unknown, which means it's probably a telemarketer. So. But in first edition, the, the 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 especially the characters, but a lot of the cards tend to capture everything that ever happened in all of the shows on the one card. So yeah. I, I think that's where the the two different abilities on forty five Dom come from. I mean, I've never seen anybody use it for battle. I always see people use it to turn their universal ship into a. Uh, unique ship. So. Well, and worse, since you have to discard it to do the download, even if the battle comes up later in the game, you've already burnt it. 
Like, because if you're putting it in, it's probably because you want your unique ship, and you probably want it sooner rather than later. So it, it's almost the second ability gets shortchanged on both ends. It's repeatable, but nobody's ever going to keep you around long enough to get into the fight. Yep. Well, was there anything on your mind that you wanted to chat about, or anything that you wanted to ask me? Oh. You don't have to. Just... <laughs> oh, good. No, because I, I am drawing a complete blank. <laughs> no, no problem. Well, thanks for being on the show, Alan. Uh, have a happy new year. And Thank you. I look forward to seeing what you and your team does for this game in 2011. I'm, kind of, I'm looking forward to getting into the guts of things. So. All right, well, we will chat next week. You live.